You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Dan. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? Cannot complain. How are you? Uh, you know what? We just had the like truly glorious day, weather-wise, uh, if to end July, which is wonderful because the entirety of July up here has been either ridiculously muggy or thunderstorm, thunderstorm, thunderstorm. Yeah, it's been weird here too. But today, I have no complaints about the weather. It's been nice. Exactly. Yes. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero podcast. You are Dan Dresner. It's been mm-hmm. a while since we've talked, but we've been doing it for a long time. You were uh, an old uh, blogging head back when uh, that was the brand this was done under, blogging heads. Every once in a while when I do a Zoom chat, I flash back to when you sent me like a, a camcorder with a tripod <laughs> and like this incredible like there was, the attachment I will never forget. It was like some sort of card yeah. that had to have been the size of like a credit card that I had to like yeah. insert into my computer to be able to like, you know, so that the, the computer could download the video and so forth. And it was it was powered by a steam engine, as I recall, too. Right? Uh, yeah, was, basically. Yes it, was, yes, it was pretty old. We That's because <laughs> we were ahead of our time, folks. So we started this in 2005 <laughs> before you had enough broadband. It's a long story, yeah. uh, but we did it. We're still here. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to this. So you, I should say a little more about you. You're you are still a professor at the Fletcher School at Tufts uh, uh, mm-hmm. of what technically international relations. I'm a professor of international politics. I think is my title. Politics. Yes. Well, there is a mm-hmm. difference. There is a difference. We yeah. may get to yeah. that. Um, longtime commentator on foreign policy for places like the Washington Post and the esteemed journal Foreign Affairs. Uh, and long ago, you were early to the blog game. Like, I don't know, I was. Close, close to 20 years ago, maybe more. More than 20 years ago, Bob. I think because I, I remember the first day I blogged was September 10th, 2002. So, wow, yeah, we're now close to 21. Scary. And now yeah. you're uh, doing what's called a newsletter, letter, which is remarkably like a blog. Uh, but it's it's a newsletter on the Substack platform called Dresner's World. Right. It is. It's funny. I can't say that. Like, I never feel right when I say newsletter. I don't know why. It just feels weird to describe it as a newsletter. In fact, like, even when I write the, the things, I still call them columns or posts or whatever. But I don't know. That's just my own peccadillos, I'm sure. Yeah, well, we all get old uh, <laughs> and, and just fail to adapt to the next wave of change and are crushed <laughs> by it as a result. But I'm sure it'll be fine. Sure uh, now, mm-hmm. I guess the only difference is is you're relying very heavily on the email version of this for your audience, whereas right. blog posts right. you could you could email things out, but that that by and large wasn't the way the traffic came. Correct. Yes. Um, so I want to talk about well, for one thing, the Ukraine war, uh, but also to put mm-hmm. that in the context of U.S. foreign policy, including the idea of grand strategy, which you've written about mm-hmm. several times in recent years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should say at the outset that you still identify as a realist of sorts. Is that right? I don't know if I would go. I mean, it's it's a hard question to answer at this point. Because um, <laughs> also, like, well, no, I'm not kidding. Like, in terms of whether you're talking about realism within the context of international relations theory among scholars, mm-hmm. or in terms of whether you're talking about foreign policy recommendations, I guess the way I would put it is that my default assumption is realist. And then the question I always ask is, well, in what ways does that assumption not hold? And to be honest, a lot of times the assumptions don't hold. So I'm willing to, you know, 
depart from realism, but I'm certainly okay. sympathetic to realism. Let's put it that way. Well, one thing that's happened is that over the last year, a lot of people who had never really heard of realism in a foreign policy context have heard of it in association with John Mearsheimer, who is only one kind of realist and in some ways an extreme mm -hmm. kind of realist. And maybe mm -hmm. we can get into some of that. Now, did you you were at the University of Chicago. Did you get your Ph.D. at Chicago where he is or? Oh, no, my story is far more sorted, uh, Bob. I got my Ph.D. at Stanford. Um, okay. My advisor, I would add, was Steve Krasner, who uh, later wound up being uh, one of the director, of, uh, one of the State Department's directors of policy planning under the second George W. Bush administration. Krasner is also a realist. So, you know, you could argue in mm -hmm. that sense, I was I was trained by a realist. John was my colleague. I was a junior uh, faculty member at Chicago okay. uh, and then got denied tenure there. Uh, in no small part due to John Mearsheimer. So it's, it's it's a sordid story. But we're not bitter. We're not the kind to be bitter, <laughs> are we? Well, <laughs> the way I would put, well, let me put it this way. I mean this sincerely. If I could go into the Wayback Machine and change that decision, mm -hmm. I wouldn't. Um, I don't think I'd realized until I left Chicago and, and got to Fletcher the extent to which I was perhaps suffering from battered wife syndrome by being at Chicago. Uh, and to be fair, you know, this is like more than 15 years ago. It was a somewhat different time. But let's just say that my public writings were not uh, looked on with enthusiasm by some in the department. Oh, I see. Was that a big part of the issue that it, it was still considered that blog type of writing was considered beneath the dignity of an esteemed scholar? Pretty much. I mean, that was that, that, it's a complicated story, and I don't want to like you know uh, bore your listeners too much into it because it's, it's also ancient it, history. Frankly. I think the the more <laughs> sorted it gets, the better. Well, let me put it this way: I would argue that in terms of of, I, I would say the following. First of all, I think the situation today is radically different from when I got denied tenure. Um, I think now, if you have a a public voice, so long as you're also productive uh, in terms of scholarship. That public voice helps you. It doesn't hurt you. In fact, if anything, oh, yeah. a lot of academic departments are obsessed with with impact and things like that. That was not necessarily true back in the day. Um, yeah. my, my favorite story about this was uh, there was a I, I remember I had my first I was going to have my first article published in Foreign Affairs. It was going to be the cover. It was going to be the lead article, which was amazing. I, I couldn't believe I'd done that. Um, I was talking. I was waiting for the elevator uh, at the University of Chicago at Pick Hall. And a senior colleague came up to me and said, so how are things going? And I said, I just found out I'm going to have the lead article in Foreign Affairs. And this person sort of cocked his head and looked at me and said, why? And I didn't really have an answer to that. I, I was not sure. I, I'm still to this day not entirely sure if it was, why are you wasting your time publishing in Foreign Affairs? Or why I would kind Foreign of Affairs doubt publish it was, you? I kind of doubt it was the first of those. What's the second again? <laughs> why? why would Foreign Affairs publish you? <laughs> um, so either way, it wasn't good. And, and in some ways, in retrospect, that should have been the, the harbinger for what was to That's come. That's one of the warning signs. When yep. colleagues say you're not worthy of being published. That's one of the warning signs. <laughs> Fair enough. Time yes. to get that time to get that CV out. Um, so anyway, anyway, the point is that it, it, it all, the point is that it legitimately did work out far better yeah. for me, and I have no complaints about how things played out. You're ahead of your time. There, everybody <laughs> in Chicago is now using all known social media to seek publicity. Oh yeah, Paul Post, for example, is a is a great uh, professor uh, at the University of Chicago of International Relations. Paul has legitimately innovated. In terms of using social media to talk about international relations, he has these great Twitter threads mm -hmm. um, he does every weekend and, you know, highly recommend following him, uh, admittedly, on 
I guess it's called X now, whatever the hell the thing is. But the point no, we're is, calling his it content Twitter. is extremely good. Yeah, let's call it Twitter. We're calling it It's Twitter. still extremely good. Yes. <laughs> okay. So uh, let's start at the Ukraine end of things. So you did mm-hmm. a news newsletter piece, uh, I guess, in February of this year around then called The War in Ukraine One Year On. And you wrote, if one looks backwards, the past year has been a solid success for U.S. foreign policy. Um, I'm wondering if uh, you, you might want to elaborate that on uh, on that a little before you tell me whether that's still your judgment. I mean, things have, at that point, Russia was in the middle of an offensive that didn't seem to be going that great. Now Ukraine mm-hmm. is in the middle of an offensive that do- doesn't seem to be going that great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first of all, maybe elaborate a little and then let us know if the judgment still stands. Sure. I mean, I think the way in which I would judge U.S. foreign policy to have been a success during the first year of the war, first of all, the fact that Ukraine simply exists and exists as an independent state, it's worth remembering that, you know, the end of February 2022, most people, and I will add here, myself included, did not think Ukraine was going to last long um, if Russia actually engaged in a full-scale invasion. Um, the fact that that Ukraine managed to uh, survive uh, is impressive and mostly speaks to the hardiness of the Ukrainians. But I think something else that you, you can't deny is the fact that there was a pretty coordinated response, not just from the United States, but from its NATO allies, from its Pacific Rim allies, um, in terms of both sending arms to Ukraine, imposing sanctions against Russia, uh, diplomatically censuring uh, Russia and sort of ostracizing them in places like the United Nations and so forth. Um, and this is a rare example, really, of, of also uh, a foreign policy instance in which the intelligence was pretty spot on in terms of what was going to happen. And this gave the Biden administration I think close to six months to prep for it. And the preparation paid off. And also they were adroit in terms of releasing intelligence prior to the war in such a way that they weren't able to do in Ukraine what they tried to do or what they did do in Georgia back in 2008 and also what they did in terms of Crimea back in in 2014. Um, The fact that that NATO is by and large held together, again, you know, a success. I mean, in some ways, I'm sure history will take that for granted, but the number of headlines I've seen in Politico over the last, you know, 18 months of like Biden has held the Western coalition together, but how long can that last? Um, mm-hmm. I always find, I think I've, I've made fun of that in a, a subsequent uh, newsletter. Uh, but the point is, is that there was a, there's a term that George Schultz, who was Reagan's uh, secretary of state referred to as gardening, meaning that you always sort of when dealing with your allies have to be, relatively upfront with them in terms of of, uh, information. And also, you're trying to essentially weed. You're trying to make sure that things don't fester, that things don't get out of control. Mm -hmm. And so in that respect, I think the Biden administration has done a good job with the coalition that that has opposed Russia's invasion. Um, And actually, more recently, I think they're not doing too shabbily with the rest of the world as well. I mean, there are some claims that the global south is more sympathetic. I don't quite buy that. Um, but I do acknowledge that they are, you know, certainly sitting on the fence. Uh, but I, the point is, is that I think a lot of people were ready to sort of accept, you know, Russia's uh, annexation of various forms of Ukrainian territory as a fait accompli come March 2022. And that's obviously no longer the case. And that's not an insignificant achievement by the not just by the Ukrainians, but by the Biden administration and its support for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um. Let's uh, I actually hadn't planned to bring Mearsheimer into this uh, this early, but I think it makes sense. <laughs> Let's mm-hmm. imagine that uh, we lived in what I think he would think is a better world. 
That is okay. to say, if we had done a deal with Russia and uh, agreed that Ukraine wouldn't join uh, mm -hmm. NATO and mm -hmm. they didn't invade as a result. Now, I guess there are two versions of this. I mean, John would have liked to have done it maybe so early that they wouldn't even be in Crimea. But let's just kind of leave Crimea aside for now. Suppose it had been right before this war. Mm -hmm. uh, would So there would be no war. Ukraine would have uh, its its you know pre-invasion uh, borders, and I guess in this uh, I guess in this scenario, well, I don't know what would happen to the territory in the Donbass that Russia uh, already was controlling. But um, let's imagine. Well, imagine whatever you want. The, the main question is: Would we would it would it have been a more successful policy if we had avoided this war? and left Ukraine in possession of much more territory than they have now as their country and found a way to give them security guarantees that were the you know practical equivalent of NATO membership. I, I think I'm going to question your premise there. I mean, that's the problem I have with it, which is I don't think that deal works for a variety of reasons. The first is the last thing you said, that somehow Ukraine would be offered security assurance is equivalent to NATO. It's worth remembering they were offered security assurances, and this is, came through in the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, where Ukraine voluntarily ceded. They never had control of the nuclear weapons, but the nuclear weapons uh, that the Soviets had put in, uh, mm -hmm. installed in Ukraine were on Ukrainian soil. And the understanding was that by giving up those nuclear weapons, Russia was supposed to respect the territorial integrity of Ukraine. So uh, I'm not sure any sort of agreement would have been trusted by the Ukrainians because the Russians had violated a previous one. The second thing is, is that I think part of the reason that Putin invades Ukraine is not so much that I think he was worried about Ukraine joining NATO, but he was more worried about Ukraine being part of the West as opposed to being part of the, the Slavic sphere of influence, as it were. And so I think for your premise to work, it wouldn't just have to be that Ukraine would be stay neutral. It would also have to be Ukraine can't join the European Union. Ukraine can't get access to European markets. It would have to have been that Ukraine would have become a satellite state of Russia. And I don't think the Ukrainians were ready for that. Um, okay, you know, but there suppose, was a world... suppose you were just to indulge my thought experiment. Okay. Suppose it were possible. And I think on the EU front, you might imagine some kind of compromise deal where uh, so, uh, there was a kind of a rich association with the EU that wasn't as exclusive of uh, Russian Ukraine ties as, in fact, EU membership tends to be. Um, you mean like some kind of Eastern partnership? Yeah, yeah some kind of halfway. I, I don't know. I mean, we, we get into that. But but the main thing okay. is just indulge the thought experiment. Suppose Ukraine okay. could have security at, mm -hmm. within uh the the border leaving Crimea aside within the borders yeah, that, yeah. that they see as their own and there mm -hmm. were no war and all these people weren't uh dead and there was no threat of uh you know mm -hmm. uh of expansion of the war and and so on um what would that be a better world I'm not actually sure it would be um there's a way in which let me put it this way there'd be a lot less loss of life one would hope I mean the dead weight loss would be eliminated you know presumably the 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 horrible casualties that both russia and ukraine have suffered uh would not be uh would not exist you assume or you hope that the disruption to global commerce that was caused by uh russia's invasion of ukraine and the way in which they've you know basically forestalled ukraine uh, from exporting grain would be 
stop. Those are huge yeah. you know, welfare gains for everyone. That said, in this scenario, Putin essentially would have been using the threat of invasion to have coerced the West to essentially cede Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And it's worth remembering that at the time in December of, of, let's say, 2021, it wasn't just Ukraine that was concerned about what Russia was doing. The Baltic states were worried about whether or not they would be defended. Poland is concerned about it. And if Putin pockets a sort of you know southern flank where he doesn't have to worry about Ukraine, um, it would not surprise me if he had then, let's say, tried to put pressure on the Baltic states. You think he would uh, invade well? a member of NATO, really? I think I don't know if he would have invaded, but I do think that he would have tried to, let's say, apply economic pressure, other forms of pressure as a way, perhaps, of testing whether NATO actually was going to commit to Article five. Uh, I don't know. I see. Uh, I, I totally don't see him invading a NATO country. But I also think you, Ukraine is uh, is unique. Well, wait a minute. Perhaps believe it this way. If you're it, you know, you're asking me to accept your premise. Right. I'm telling you that in your premise. Putin wins in Ukraine because he's just used the threat of military force right. to get what he wants, which is, you know, a, a, a wider um, security buffer. I can see that, you know, in that scenario, Putin keep, sees himself as having one in Georgia in 2008, one mm. in Ukraine in 2014, one in Syria in 2021 and one in Ukraine again in 2022. I don't think he stops is my point. Um, I think he then just continues to, uh, you know, expand his ambit. The um, you know, I, I would point out there's a sense in which he you're you're afraid that he would get positive reinforcement for bad behavior. There's a sense mm -hmm. in which that's almost bound to happen anyway. It, it seems to be very unlikely he's not going to wind up with some additional territory when this war is over as a result of actually invading this time, not just massing troops at a border. This time you're you're you know that's a kind of positive reinforcement even for invading. Now you can argue that all things told, it's a strategic loss for him. Yeah. But my point is that that I think that there's kind of no way around uh, giving him some measure, him winding up with some measure of positive reinforcement for something we don't like yet, right? I, I'm certainly willing to acknowledge that. I mean, I think, you know, the question is the ways in which this war ends, it's tough to envisage at this point. But I would argue that that what Putin might get out of it in the end, if I was to envision how this is going to end, what you would want would be some sort of version where the status of Crimea actually becomes legally acknowledged by Ukraine. And what's interesting is that Zelensky sort of made moves in that direction in the sort of first half of 2022. Uh, As to the Donbass, I don't the, the, the real problem is I don't see how I don't see how Russia backs down from this no matter what, because the problem is that they've legally annexed these four territories, right. two of which they have barely they have one of which they uh, two of which they have barely any control over the other two they're sort of losing some control so i not in I, Luhan, think the I would say i would say just quickly in luhansk right yeah. now i think they're actually gaining ground but uh okay. you're in in, in Donetsk, you're right uh, i probably. think they're losing control and they certainly in zaporizhia kherson it's you know far from clear that they control anything and you know i've had enough contacts with russians over the last 18 months to think that they at this point i don't think they know how they, I think they're just as flummoxed about how to get out of this as a lot of you know, the commentators observing mm -hmm. it, because the problem is that by committing to the legal annexation, they have thrown their steering wheel out the window. Um, so I don't think there is any negotiation necessarily that that ends with this. And I think people are underestimating the degree to which for that, to, you know, the, I think the only way this 
ends anytime soon, frankly, is if there's continued instability inside Russia that, for, you know, basically forces Putin's hand or his successor's hand. Yeah, well, where to begin? So first of all, to be clear, um, are you saying you don't think he'll end the war until he actually controls all all of those four provinces? I mean, I don't think he's that crazy. I don't I don't I don't think he's actually crazy, although I worry that uh, he could grow more and more desperate uh, and even impulsive, uh, especially if he is threatened with, you know, if he does feel his regime is internally mm -hmm. threatened. But um, are, are you saying he's not going to give up what he's already gained in these four provinces, which I think is plausible? I think if you want yes. peace now, if you want a ceasefire now with Putin, I think you might get one. Uh, where the lines are. But are you further saying you don't think he will stop fighting until he actually is in possession of all of, of Kherson and Zaporizhia? Basically, yes. I mean, he might Whoa. agree to a temporary ceasefire, but I I am skeptical that, and, and you know, you, people could argue maybe he'll accept a frozen conflict. I, I, I am dubious of this precisely because it creates this embarrassing situation where Russia, you know, by, by Russian legal standards, Ukraine has invaded Russian territory because they've occupied Kherson and they've occupied parts of Zaporizhia. I I don't see how Putin can walk away by saying, well, you know what, we we did annex these territories, but now we're going to, you know, give them up. As for whether Putin is crazy, I do want to point out, like, you know, you're you're concerned that he's going to get crazy if there's more domestic well, instability. Desperate, impulsive, so on. Yeah. yeah. But my point is, is that, you know, having a, you know, armed militia. Uh, on the outskirts of Moscow, I don't know how much more unstable you're going to get. Um, and what's interesting to me is that I, he hasn't responded in in some ways impulsively since then, which I find intriguing. No, I think he he didn't lash out. That's for sure. If anything, people yeah. are surprised by the opposite that he didn't do mm -hmm. more lashing out, and that uh, Prigozhin right. seems to have gotten off as lightly as he's gotten off. But I think if you understood the whole power structure and the way the role of Wagner in Africa and everything else, maybe it would make more sense. I don't, and and yeah. Prigozhin's degree of practical control of Wagner and the difficulty of prying it away and so on. So, um, so anyway, I mean, the reason, kind of the reason I, so, so you would just say, just keep uh, fighting on. I mean, it almost sounds like if you could get the war to end right now, uh, by your lights in a certain sense, that would be a good deal because uh putin's aims would have been thwarted um mm -hmm. I, I, my own view is uh first of all i think it's more likely than some people imagine that if you said to putin can we stop the fighting right now he would say yes uh now a lot of people uh in the u.s and ukraine would would consider that unacceptable maybe but i think putin might well Say yes. And if that became a frozen conflict, you know, that is in many ways suboptimal, including the fact that he would have gotten a form of positive reinforcement for invading. I, I buy all that. It's just that mm -hmm. I don't see continuing the war having a very high probability of leading to anything better. I mean, it could. It's just that the the ways it leads to catastrophe are also non-trivial. And what and is catastrophe in your mind? I want to I want to understand what uh, you mean by catastrophe well, here because this is important. A wider war, NATO getting involved, and and it actually bleeding into Western Europe. Uh, but true catastrophe, of course, would involve uh, you know nuclear weapons, which I don't think. Again, who knows if he feels his regime is threatened yeah. and he thinks maybe one tactical nuclear weapon uh, would 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 stop Ukraine, and it turns out he miscalculates. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the war is slowly escalating and expanding even as we speak, you know, with more and more cross-border strikes and so on. Um, right. Although you mean by cross-border strikes, you're talking between Russia and Ukraine. Because I, I live yeah. this way. I'm I'm much more sanguine on these things, I think, than you are. And it basically based on the last 18 months, because if there are if there are two areas where I think actually there are at least tacit understandings between Russia and the West, the first is, is that this is a war between Russia and Ukraine under no circumstances should there be you know, should it spill out any, you know, anywhere else in bo- uh, across those two borders? I think the fact that you had when the missile was shot down in Poland, the fact that that was quickly and and rather forcefully tamped down suggests that, in fact, neither side wants to see this uh, escalate any further. And Russia, I think, definitely doesn't want to see this escalate any further, because if NATO actually gets involved in terms of troops, it's you, you know not going to end well for Russia. The other way in which I think um, there's a tacit understanding is I don't and maybe this is me based on on everything that Putin has said so far and the fact that a lot of what he said hasn't come to fruition is I don't buy the nuclear card on this one. Putin has been constantly, you know, was was for the first six or seven months constantly brandishing the nuclear weapon, you know, nuclear weapons, particularly tactical nuclear weapons, as we will go there if if that's where things go. And. You know, and also if if Russia, if the West escalates in terms of arms exports or whatever, the point is Putin has kept drawing red lines saying if you cross this, we might use nuclear weapons. NATO has crossed all of those red lines. Nuclear weapons have not been used. I actually think it's it's not a conceivable uh, outcome unless admittedly you're right. Like if, if truly Russia is falling apart, but not even, you know, NATO doesn't want that. Um, for a variety well, They don't of want it, but they can't control it. The, the extent to which he feels threatened. And I'd say. Um, a couple of things. First of all, as for the Poland thing, uh, yeah. if you focus on how Zelensky responded to that, which is he said mm-hmm. a Russian missile did, missile did this, and he basically said NATO needs to join us in the war. Well, it turned out his Ukrainian missile that had, you know, right. inadvertently mm-hmm. anti-aircraft missile killed these guys in Poland. Um, mm-hmm. And he was a little quick <laughs> to judge. But what that mm-hmm. signifies is what you would expect, which is that if I were him, I'd want NATO in the war. Because that's the sure, only way they're going to get Russia off their territory. But but from our point of view, it it, it includes unacceptable uh, risks, I think. We don't want right. to be in that world. So one thing to keep in mind in terms of risks associated with the continuation of this war is Ukraine wants NATO in it. That's a fact. And, and they've done a number of things that I think, in a sense, reflect that. And it's an ongoing risk. And then on Putin's side, what I would say is, uh, yeah, I don't think he's going to try uh, uh, the, the, to use a tactical nuclear weapon anytime soon. But, uh, you know, uh, we agree that we don't know for sure what he'd do if he felt his regime was uh, was threatened uh, more deeply than it's been so far. And the threat seems to be coming from the nationalist right. Who did he just arrest? Gherkin, right? Gherkin. Igor yeah, Gherkin. Yeah. From the right. That That's where... Uh, I, I think that's where he feels the threat coming from. And mm-hmm. and that suggests that to the extent that he feels there's any, any domestic constituency he has to appease to stay in power, that uh, the, the process of appeasement would move him toward a more hawkish uh, position in the war. And, and the last thing I'd say is, I don't think it's likely that he's going to use a nuclear weapon. My view on nuclear war is that if you do something that moves the chances from 1% to 2%, you better have a very good reason. And mm-hmm. I I don't. So I'd like to know what is the reason to continue the war? What is the hopeful uh, prospect 
associated with continuing what seems to be a very bloody stalemate at this point? Well, again, first, I'm going to question your premise. I'm not sure it's a bloody stalemate. We don't know how the Ukraine counteroffensive is going to play out. I grant you it obviously has not. Uh, you haven't seen breakthrough gains like you saw last fall. Um, I am curious to see whether, you know, it winds up being a little more uh, somewhat more productive than than we have seen today. But let, let's now let's I'll, I'll grant you that. I think there's a couple of things going on here. The first is just the simple fact that the Ukrainians want to keep fighting. Um, you know, the idea that that. NATO can just sort of exercise a veto here and say, no, you're you're going to stop now. That's not going to happen. Um, I think denies, you know, it denies the very agency that Putin has been trying to deny for the last 10 years now. Uh, and so I, I don't think that that works terribly well. Um, the second reason, to be honest, is I'm not sure you necessarily want Russia to actually have a sort of strategic pause in Ukraine, um, because if it does that, then it also potentially has the capability to, you know, rebuild relatively quickly and then potentially go into Ukraine again, uh, you know, with more force and having learned what it's learned over the last couple of years. Let me put it this way. I, the, the idea of a ceasefire. I guess my question is, would that be paired with Ukraine actually joining NATO? Um. It's conceivable that that would happen, I, I, I think, as a practical matter. I, I think it would. Because then, probably... I, then I then I think it's a more viable option. In other words, if you're telling Ukraine, look, we know you've been you, you, you know, we know you've lost territory. We know you've suffered grievously. We're going to give you Article five from here on in. And that might be a scenario where I could see Ukraine, you know, saying yes to it. I don't think the Russians are going to say yes to that, though, to be clear, because that represents it again a strategic debacle for them. But maybe they would find a way to to claim that, you know, by making territorial gains, it's fine that that Ukraine is in NATO. But again, like I I I I guess I'm pessimistic that there is any deal to be struck. I know that there's a lot of talk out there about well, why can't we just, you know, end the war? I don't think there's a a, a wind set that exists between Russia, Ukraine, and NATO at this point. Um yeah, I uh, I don't know, but I know we're, uh, you know, we're not, uh, as far as I can tell, we're not trying to find out. I mean, Zelensky himself has ruled out peace talks. He says so long as there is one soldier mm -hmm. on Ukrainian soldier uh, soil, he won't do it. So he has ruled it out. You mean Russian soldier? Um, Russian Ukrainian. soldier on Ukrainian so, territory. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Zelensky has ruled it out. Putin has mm -hmm. uh, not, and I think lately has explicitly said he's up for it. So I think the days when people can say, well, I'd be happy to talk peace, but Putin won't do it are just over. And if you're serious about exploring peace, um, you, you got to do it because uh, I, you got to at least test sorry, the waters. Leave it this way. So I, I don't know if you, I, I, were you paying any attention to this kerfuffle about the sort of track two slash track one point five talks uh, between little. some Americans and and uh, uh, among others, Lavrov, but but Russian officials. Um let me put it this way. Uh, the idea that Putin is now willing to, to discuss ceasefire is not, was not clear at all based on the, the readouts I've seen from those track two, track 1.5. So if Putin is willing to talk, that is not trickled down to those who have actually been engaging with Americans. I will also say I've had you know contacts with some of uh, my uh, Russian colleagues over the last year or so. And there is no wiggle room on the Russian side in terms of of a way out of this war. So I'm very pessimistic 
about the premise that Putin is willing to sit down and, and talk. And so, yeah, I, I think that's where I mean, that, and that's where we are. Like, and, and look at this way, if if Putin were to suddenly give an address where he's like, OK, I'm willing to say I will not deal with Kherson and Zaporizhia. Just give me Donetsk and Luhansk and then we can talk. Then, yeah, I do think that merits having some serious conversations and even forcing the Ukrainians to go to the table to talk. But I'm not seeing anything like that coming from Russia. So, well, you're seeing that, even less of that coming from the Ukrainian side. I mean, people don't make concessions before they sit down to talk generally. No, but they signal they're open to concessions. Well, he is. They signal that they're they're willing to talk. And I don't get that. Well, from, I think Putin has said he's Putin. willing to talk. He hasn't said he's willing to make. Uh, I, I don't know. You may know more than I do about what the track one point five. Uh, I, I, I don't know that much about what came out of that. It sounds like maybe you do. But yeah, I mean, I, again, I read like there was the NBC story a couple months ago, about a month or two ago. And then there was a, the Moscow Times just uh, wrote up something. And basically it suggested that on the Russian side, they are not sure what they want, first of all. Mm -hmm. And second of all, that they had demonstrated zero wiggle room in terms of of territory in Ukraine. So mm -hmm. if that's where you're if that's their the position, then you can have track two, track 1.5 negotiations till the cows come home. It's not going to accomplish anything. And I don't know what you're going to have in terms of uh, I mean, you're right that eventually you're going to have to have talks, ideally. But, you know, the problem is, is that I don't I don't think that even if you tried to sit down now, even if you force Zelensky to sit to the table, you're not going to accomplish anything. It's still going to be decided on the battlefield. Well, I think the U.S. has the leverage. Let me let me first say one thing about agency. As you as you started to, to shortly mm -hmm. before you uttered the word agency, I thought, oh, no, Dan's going to use the word agency. This word kind of <laughs> drives me crazy. But let me say, you know, you said, well, the Ukrainians don't uh, want to end the war and we have to respect mm -hmm. Ukrainian agency. You know, I'm not sure, first of all, how much the average Ukrainian knows about the actual prospects for getting the Russians off Ukrainian soil. Remember, the media has basically been nationalized. They shut down all but one TV station. It's controlled by the government. They banned 11 opposition political parties. They've canceled the presidential election or postponed the presidential election, post postponed the parliamentary election, um, which I don't think, you know, that's probably not all that extraordinary when there's a war on your soil. Uh, uh, but mm -hmm. but the the government's control of the media uh, and, and their their general reluctance to disclose even like casualty figures um, suggests to me I, I'm not sure the Ukrainian people aren't more optimistic than is warranted about the chances of ever uh, of, of getting the Russians off their soil at anything like a realistic cost. So that, that's just an, an asterisk um, I'd add to that. The uh, And, you know, aside, I mean, on peace, I, I would say, well, you know, try it, uh, you know, <laughs> make him an offer um, and see what he says. But I just, uh, what, what are the, what are the hopeful scenarios for the war? Just that the, I, I mean, mm -hmm. the other, the, the, that the Ukrainian offensive, uh, Work. I would say the most, yeah, the hope, the hopeful scenario for the war is that the Ukrainian counteroffensive actually does sort of split the land corridor. In other words, if you if if they get to Melitopol or or such that, um, you know, Russia can no longer, uh, essentially resupply Crimea without going over the Kerch Bridge. They have that that they can't do it uh, via yeah. land. That that's a serious strategic setback uh, for Russia in terms of the war. 
Uh, also, presumably, if that happens, it would mean that uh, Ukrainians would regain control of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which is a legitimate source of concern and, and does is the one thing that really keeps me up at night in terms of, of how this is going to how this uh, counteroffensive will play out. Um, then it becomes an interesting question of to what extent are the Russians willing to actually acknowledge the reality on the ground, as it were? Um, and that's I honestly don't know. And again, this goes back to this sort of black hole that is uh, what the Kremlin is thinking. But I do think that's a moment where maybe if you're, you know, Biden at that point, you can tell you can push the Ukrainians. OK, look, you've accomplished this at great cost. Take advantage of the moment. See what you can get in terms of actually, you know, having uh, some sort of armistice signed. I don't have high hopes for that in terms of an armistice actually being signed. But I do think that's where you would actually. In, in some ways, my old uh, dean, Steve Bosworth, used to talk about sort of um, the ripeness of a diplomatic moment. And I guess what I'm saying is that I don't think the diplomatic moment is terribly ripe right now, which doesn't mean that it can't be ripe in the future. And when that is, does happen, that's when you have to push. And so, again, it's not that I'm opposed to the idea of pushing for diplomacy. I just don't think it's productive now. I think it might be productive after Ukraine achieves a significant, you know, win. Um, but as a realist, I guess you would acknowledge well first of all do you agree that in purely game theoretical terms leave aside american domestic politics all kinds of complications and just game yeah. theoretical terms the u.s has the leverage to push Zelensky to the peace talks right we are supplying the yes. weapons we can just say yes. look you want him to keep coming you have to settle for this deal so in principle we can do that and by the same token yeah. we have leverage over the russians uh, because we, you know, we can say, look, we'll we'll send them 500 F-16. Well, we can't send them that many F-16s, but you know what I mean. You can threaten to to not only sustain but accelerate the uh, arms and so on. But certainly, uh, we have the leverage in theory <laughs> to push Zelensky to the to the table. Um, actually, I mean, I think mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I was going to pause and say. Donald Trump actually said something semi-sensible. You realize you sound exactly like well, Donald Trump. You got to right? admit he had the game theory down, right? I don't think he has the game theory down. I mean, it's, like, first of all, yes, let, let's be blunt. The U.S. can probably force Ukraine to the negotiating table. Absolutely true. Uh, the idea that the U.S. will then be able to turn around and go to Russia and say, look, you got to talk now. Otherwise, we're giving them, you know, the farm. We've already given them a lot. I don't think that actually pushes. I don't think that motivates Russia to go to the bargaining table. I find that yeah, okay. uh, wildly implausible. Um, as wildly implausible as Trump's other yeah, reasons. That, that was actually policy. the part that Trump talked about. So far as Zelensky goes, he just said, I'd tell him X. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and what he didn't add is the leverage you have is the supply of weapons. So you can see that we have that leverage. I was just going to say, as a realist, I would think you would almost expect a great power to act this way, right? In, in, in real politics, this is what great powers do. They're fighting a proxy war and they tell the proxy what to do, right? In Sure, but if you want me to be, uh, how realpolitik do you want me to be? Because this is where we start talking about things that we're not supposed to be saying out loud. But well, I think we're already you know, there, so you might as well. Uh... Okay, then the answer is is that part one of the great strategic gains from Russia's invasion of Ukraine is that weirdly it has made Europe feel far more secure and also pushed Europe in a foreign policy direction that accords well with the United States. There is something to be said, therefore, for, you know, Ukraine wants to keep fighting this war. If Ukraine keeps fighting this war, they are essentially preventing Russia from applying military coercion anywhere else on their periphery. And that, again, is a strategic windfall for the United States. 
And so if you really want me to be a realist about this, I mean, I like the idea that, like, you know, the Baltics feel more secure. The fact that Finland and Sweden are now in NATO, the fact that the eastern flank now feels like it it's, the longer this war goes on, mm-hmm. the more Europe will be prepared to deal with a revanchist Russia when the war ends. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would add that another thing this war has done is put Russia on a wartime footing. I think its factories are producing more tanks and ammo than they were before. Uh, it is being forced to revisit stale military doctrines. So it may well be better prepared for a war 10 years hence than it would have been otherwise. I, that's just something I, I, I thought it's I'd possible. Out. Although, again, I, I think that, that that is a fair point, although I don't know how much they're revisiting their stale military doctrine. Like one of the interesting things is the fact that that, you know, with all the sort of internal turmoil within Russia, they you know, the, it's the folks who had had relative success, like Sotovikin, who have been sidelined now. And so I, I'm not actually sure that they're going to they're demonstrating the same kind of learning curve that the Ukrainians have. Mm-hmm. So you're you're saying in a way the the upside of the war is it's making uh, nations that previously felt imperiled by Russia feel less imperiled. Mm-hmm. One question I have is, did we have to? I mean, my critique of U.S. foreign policy is that we didn't have to get to a point where they felt imperiled by Russia in the first place. I was. I was against NATO expansion and various other things. And mm-hmm. as a way of getting a sense for where you stand on this, I wanted to quote something you said in your uh, this your newsletter piece, The War in Ukraine, one year on. Uh, you were talking about the senses in which this has been a setback for Putin, hasn't gone well. And you say uh, that is a long way to fall for a leader, meaning Putin, who ostensibly spent the last two decades trying to make Russia able to compete with the West. That's not the way I would put it. I I would say I think Putin spent uh, the first five of those years trying to join the West, in effect. And of course, he'd want to be as competitive as possible with anybody, including Western countries. But I really believe that Mm -hmm. he spent the early years uh, of his presidency uh, trying to join the West, in effect, and and I could I could cite the things that I think uh, the mistakes we made that I think uh, made that uh, less likely. But does that does that make any sense for you? I think, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Mir- I think Mearsheimer might agree with what I'm saying. I'm not sure. But sure. Uh, oh, he but, definitely would. Yes. But what do you think? I think it's a play this way. I it, this falls under the reasonable people can disagree definition. In, the, in, other, in other words, I think it's a plausible claim you can make that, you know, Putin circa 2001 to 2000 five, six, right before the Orange Revolution, I would say, in in Ukraine, was recognized that the West was vastly more powerful, seemed at least somewhat interested in bandwagoning with the West. I think this was around the time, you know, he proposed that Russia actually even join NATO, which was an which was an idea that NATO never took seriously um, for a variety of reasons. I put it this way. I don't I don't believe that NATO expansion is what causes Putin to turn Take take the sort of, you know, uh, more hostile turn that he does. It obviously didn't help. Um, and I am perfectly willing to acknowledge that in particular, the 2008 Bucharest right. uh, NATO Pro- summit promising future membership to Ukraine, basically, and yeah. Georgia was in retrospect yeah. a catastrophe. And that was, you know, it never, never let it be said that lame duck administrations can't uh, it can't alter foreign policy. You can argue that was. That that is an area where I'm in complete agreement with Mearsheimer that that was wound up being a disastrous move. Um, 
But it's worth remembering that Putin actually, you know, it was the 2007 Munich Security Conference where he first sort of, you know, fires the the sort of flare gun of saying, we are no longer going to play by the rules that you assume we're going to play by. Um, and so, yeah, there's a there's a valid argument to be made that maybe Putin could have been accommodated. To be honest, if, if you're asking me what my interpretation of, of events would be, it would be that I think the lesson that Putin took from both the 90s and the 2000s is that the only way that NATO and the West were going to deal with Russia um, in, a, in a manner of respect was if Russia had sufficient power um, to be able to push back. Uh, that until, you know, the Russian military was rebuilt, until the Russian economy was rebuilt, uh, until Russia had significant, you know, uh, economic reserves, NATO wasn't going to care a flying fig about what Russia did. And so, you know, he he benefited both from the U.S. distraction with respect to things like the war on terror and the fact that you had high oil prices that enriched Putin. And my colleague Chris Miller uh, at Fletcher wrote a great book about sort of Putin's economic uh, steps that he took uh, from basically his first two decades that that allowed him by 2007 to feel like he was in a position where he could for the first moment, you know, finally push back. And do you think he was right when he thought that NATO wouldn't care about Russia until Russia got militarily stronger? Pretty much. Yeah. Well, then that's a, um, I would say that's, that's a mistake on NATO's part then because they're incentivizing him uh, to do a military mm -hmm. build. And that was a mistake. We did not send the West and the U.S. in particular, especially under George Bush, did mm -hmm. not take the opportunities to integrate Russia into the West. That's my view. And you mentioned the 2007 Munich speech. And and you're right. He, he says, I'm not going to play by your rules. But but what he's also saying is I'm willing to play by the same rules as you. He's very clear in saying the U.S. has been violating international law by invading countries and stuff. He And he he says the U.N. charter should mm -hmm. govern relations among nations. And by the way, at that point, he, Russia, had complied with the U.N. charter in the sense of not invading any countries. The U.S. hadn't. The U.S. had repeatedly violated the U.N. charter in Kosovo when he was prime minister, in Iraq, mm -hmm. arguably in various other places. And he was very clear about that. And he also alluded to NATO expansion. But those were the two big things. And and he and he was right. Mm -hmm. He said, look, you say you've got a rules based order, but you're not complying with the the rules you purport to uphold. This can't go on forever. It was as clear a warning as you could ask for. And what did we do the next year? We said, OK, we're welcoming Ukraine into NATO after Bill Burns sent the both a memo yeah. to the administration broadly mm -hmm. when he was ambassador to Moscow and an email to Condi Rice that was circulated to the whole uh, national security team saying, mm -hmm. this is crazy. This is the worst thing you mm -hmm. can do. Ukraine yeah. is a red line, unlike any other country on Russia's periphery. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. A couple of responses to this. First of all, I, the one thing I want to dispense with is the fiction that Russia, you're right, Russia never invaded, um, you know, uh, violated, uh, never invaded uh, one of its neighbors. However, even during its weakest point in the 1990s, it sure as hell funded and supported a lot of irredentist movements all along the periphery. Think about Transnistria. Think about Tajikistan. Uh, think well, about we, the, we the know wars a thing or two about that, don't we? We know yeah, a thing or two uh, about I'm, how to I'm do that. What I'm trying to say is, don't tell me that Russia was clean as as the driven snow. But that's you know, they not were, a violation of weakest. the UN Charter. That's that's not a violation of the law in the way that invading right. Ukraine was. Sure. Second, I agree with you that, again, the 2008, the, the catastrophe of the 2008 NATO summit 
was that the U.S. really did think, and I, I will never, the, the Bush administration deserves all the criticism it, it, it gets on this one. They really thought that the declaration was just a throwing a symbolic bone to Ukraine and Georgia, not realizing that the Russians would take it seriously. And that's really the catastrophe. And the Ukrainians, probably. Right. No, not even the Ukrainians, because like, remember, public opinion in Ukraine in 2008, they were not supporting NATO. They didn't want to join NATO. It was more there were a few, you know, there were there were some in Ukraine that wanted to do it. But Ukraine was was very divided on this question, even, you know, circa 2014 uh, or 2013. Um, you know, it was only after that. Uh, second, I, while I certainly accept your point that the U.S. has obviously, you know, violated uh, U.N. Uh, the, the U.N. charter in terms of what it's done. The one thing the United States hasn't done, which Russia is now doing, is rewriting territorial borders and annexing territory. Um, so if you want to talk about, you know, red lines, I'm perfectly willing to acknowledge the U.N. Yeah, or the U.S. Yes. In various it's various interventions, um, you know, has has run afoul of the United Nations. Actually, actually, Dan, I think Russia would say, and I think correctly, that we actually did do that in Kosovo. That intervention was not sanctioned. Kosovo by is the, not part of the United States. Well, okay, Kosovo, that's, we, that's we did not, we that's did not, true. you know, pass true, an amendment saying Kosovo is a 51st state. I thought you meant we haven't redrawn any borders unilaterally. The, the, the uh, you know, the oh, Kosovo sure. no, no, intervention no, was not sanctioned by the UN. And Correct. of course, as you yes. know, this drove Russia crazy. I mean, this was yes, right. It did. Absolutely. You know, we had been saying, don't worry, NATO, we, you know, it's going to expand, but it's all about peace, harmony, and democracy. The first thing mm -hmm. we do is bomb a Slavic country and pry away from their point of view, a part of the country that is rightfully theirs, from their point of view. But uh, what so I will anyway, say I understand it, now what you it, meant. Yes, it's been a long time yeah. since the U.S. expanded its own borders by force, yes. Right. And that's what I'm trying to say, that, that say what you will, you know, Russia has now done this. They've. I mean, that in some ways is the, the, the and I would argue the more egregious, you know, it, it, I, I, I'm very uncomfortable with the sort of whataboutism, well, you know, the United States has done all these things, is Russia really you know, any different. Yeah, Russia's really different in the sense that it's now legally said this is the territory. This territory is now Russian territory. Right. That's it. And by the way, that's another reason why I think Europe is justifiably concerned about what Russian intentions are going to be going forward. This is why when you have rhetoric inside Russia about, well, you know, technically Poland was part of Tsarist Russia or the Baltics right. or Finland or so on and so forth. Yeah, I think it's absurd that they're actually going to do anything about it. But on the other hand, what you can now say is they've annexed territory like it's not just as nuclear weapons are supposedly not an unprecedented thing to think about, that's also something you now have to think about in a, in a, a conceivable yeah. way. No, I, 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 you know, my my critique of U.S. foreign policy is I think it just didn't have to get to this point at all. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, you know, that goes goes back a ways. And I also agree that um, Ukraine, was, it was going to be a challenge, given the EU and everything, to negotiate yeah. that. It, it was a delicate maneuver. I guess mm -hmm. I would just say U.S. foreign policy showed nowhere remotely approaching the degree of delicacy required. It was just so ham Fair. But also European diplomacy didn't either. I mean, it's always worth remembering that what triggers the Maidan protests in 2013 has nothing to do with NATO, and it doesn't even have to do with European Union membership. It was just about Ukraine getting this Eastern partnership with the European Union. And that, for Putin, could not stand. And that's what, you know, triggers, uh, you know, uh, uh, his... Yushchenko, uh, Yevtushenko winds up saying no. That leads to, oh, sorry, Yanukovych yeah. says no. Yeah. That leads to protests in Kiev. That leads to, you know, the Maidan. Right. Although the two things I'd say are, of course, the, U the U.S., you know, was was certainly supporting 
uh, the protest movement that led to what I think it's fair to call the violent deposing of the president. Not not to say they were supporting the violent deposing necessarily, but they were supporting uh, the movement that the same one that the, the Western Europeans were. My point is that Western yeah. Europe wasn't alone in this. We were there. Victoria Newland was on the Maidan and so on. But the mm -hmm. other the connection, the, there's a kind of connection to NATO, which is that what I think one thing that freaked Putin out about that turn of events uh, was that, and he said something about this at the time, I think in, uh, well, he had said back in 2008, he had said, imagine Sebastopol in NATO's hands. Of course, that's where the big mm -hmm. uh, naval base is. It's where the Black Sea fleet yeah, is based. Th yes. th that, that scared the hell out of him. And mm -hmm. I think it helps explain why he responded to Maidan by uh, by seizing Crimea, which I don't defend. But I'm just saying there's a kind of subtle interaction between the EU and the NATO concerns. Oh, on sure. His part. Absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing, by the way, that I think scares the hell out of Putin is the fact that it was this color revolution thing that happens. Because remember, the other the other sort of you know fatal step for Putin was when he decides he's going to run for president again in, uh, you know, in 2011. And there are protests in Moscow which catch him by surprise. This, this mm -hmm. is where he blames Hillary Clinton for everything, um, which, to my knowledge, she had no role in. But the point is, is that, you know, fundamentally, it's also about the idea that that he could be at the he could be on the receiving end of one of those kinds of uprisings. And you can argue in some ways everything is done for the last 12 years has been dedicated to the proposition that he he's not going to be on the receiving end of that. Um. That's certainly something you'd like to avoid. Um, yeah. The uh, okay. So listen, we've been talking uh, close to an hour, and one thing I've been doing lately is uh, having the first hour of these conversations uh, in the in the public domain, uh, which mm -hmm. they've long been, uh, and then um, having an overtime session that's available to paid subscribers to the Non-Zero newsletter. Uh, I'm sure you're sympathetic to the idea of. Uh, trying to extract extract money from the pockets of your newsletter subscribers. You, ha you haven't taken that e step extract yet? No, no, no. I, I, I got you, subscribers. You, wait, I don't you don't extract, think money sound, extract money sounds much harsher than the way you I You don't think that it, was a yes. public relations uh, coup there that I just, that I, I didn't just demonstrate <laughs> my my finesse. No, I'm joking. Uh, that's trying the last... You're trying to reward right. subscribers. I was paid subscribers. That's, I was yes, joking. Yes, exactly. You yes. sympathize with my desire to have people support your noble mission in whatever way they can. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's what I meant to say. I'm sorry. Anyway. There we go. Uh, so, um, you know, you can uh, become a paid subscriber. Just Google Substack. There's a link in the uh, show notes to the podcast app. And, but seriously, we really do appreciate people supporting what we do here um and there's a lot of there's also written content you get and 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 so on uh the friday parrot room with uh mickey cows you remember mickey uh, it's hard to forget mickey <laughs> we'll leave it there yeah. um the um so we are so thanks everybody who stayed with us this far and thanks to those who are going to continue with us into overtime and uh meanwhile remember to subscribe to dan's newsletter dresner's uh, world